Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When things don't work out the way you want them to, what do you tell people? And what do you tell yourself? There's no shortage of proverbs to offer up when life doesn't live up to expectations. Every cloud has a silver lining. All that glitters is not gold. When one door closes, another door opens. You've probably heard them all by now. Most of these maxims are about how failure inevitably leads to success. And that general way of thinking has really seeped into popular culture. People often reflect on their failures in interviews, award speeches, and at graduation ceremonies. And it's usually an effort to explain or even justify their achievements. The belief that with failure comes success is very comforting and reassuring. But what if our focus on success is actually hindering our ability to fully engage with our limitations and also find humility? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Kustika Radatan. He's a professor at Texas Tech University and honorary research professor of philosophy at University of Queensland in Australia. He's also an editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I invited him onto the show to talk about his new book, In Praise of Failure, Four Lessons in Humility. It's a deep and often humorous read, and interestingly, he opens the book with a rather colorful thought experiment. He asks the reader to imagine they're on a plane and suddenly at high altitude, one of the engines fails. You can guess what happens next. It's a vivid image that to his mind captures something fundamental about the human situation. And that's where we started our conversation. the fundamental assumption of the book, the notion that we are caught up between two instantiations of nothingness. We come from nowhere and we go nowhere. In cases like this, when the plane engine stops, we come so close to realizing 
that fragility, that fundamental precariousness of existence, and that that extraordinary quality of being in, in this world. I love thought experiments because they can be very useful at dramatizing banal truths, truths that have otherwise lost their emotional resonance. And so in this case, with the plane, I mean, is the point that, so the engine failure creates this rupture for everyone on board, right? We all have this sort of default mode of being in the world, and that just gets exploded. And suddenly, if you're on board, you're just staring down your own death. And of course, your own death is always lurking in the distance. We all sort of know it's there. But normally, in our default mode, we're really, really gifted at avoiding thinking about that nothingness. But in that moment, you're sort of jerked by the collar and made to stare it down. And that is a rather unique experience. We come equipped in this world with lots of devices that prevent us from looking into the abyss. And it's, it's a very smart way in which we have been designed. We, we cannot afford to look too much into the abyss because that's, it's, it's, it's not taking us anywhere to live, you know, to be in this world, to be alive, to be able to reproduce and, 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 and survive. All that excludes pondering over you know, nothingness and death and, and finitude and so on. So in a fundamental way, the big philosophical questions are out of the scope of our default mode. And only in such cases as we are talking about here, that you know, that plain example or similar cases, can we gain a deeper access or a clear vision of what may be like not to be at all. You know, this um way of thinking about failure is so interesting to me. You know, I think we intuitively imagine failure as the opposite of success, but you describe it as a disruption of our everyday expectations of the world. And I've never thought about failure as a disconnection in that way. I've never thought about it as an event that gives us a chance, if we're mindful or attuned in the right way, to appreciate the fragility of our condition. And, you know, you say that you don't think we take failure seriously enough. And I wonder what you mean exactly by that. I mean that we don't spend time, enough time, or as much time as we should, thinking failure through, because that would turn us into metaphysically sick persons, into unproductive citizens, and so on. Eventually, into asocial beings, and we prefer not to see it. We have this bias to make a selection, to see only certain things and to move on. Those things that help us survive, those things that help us, you know, reproduce and, and spend time in this world, we stay away instinctively from death, from failure, from destruction, from, from whatever is dark, from whatever is, you know, abyss, from whatever reminds us of the fundamental void against which our existence takes place. Yeah, I mean, look, sometimes <laughs> you can't ponder over your own death. Sometimes you just have to get off your ass and, and mow the yard or, <laughs> or take out the trash or pick up your kid from daycare, right? That's not something, it's just not feasible to be doing that all the time. But there are these moments where you're forced to do that and there's, there's wisdom to be gained in those moments. Exactly. It's my understanding that spiritual life comes from there. It's, spirituality doesn't necessarily mean religion. Of course, we, we do have a lot, lot of religion 
religious life is about spirituality. But you can have spirituality in, in philosophy, in science, in the arts, and so on. In my understanding, spirituality is about ask, addressing the big questions, not necessarily f- formulating an, an answer, but just confronting them. As long as we do that, in the process of doing so, we are doing uh, spiritual stuff. And in that respect, my book is an attempt at uh, kind of formulating a secular spirituality. I want to, if we can, unpack a little bit your sort of vision of failure, how you think about failure. And you, you describe different forms of failure. There's physical failure, political failure, social failure, and biological failure. And you've chosen five historical figures as models of each kind. And, you know, we don't need to go over all their stories, but mm-hmm. why did you choose the people you chose? I assume that they were all instructive for different reasons. Right. So there is something boundless about failure. It comes with everything we see around. There is a failure in the engine that stops working as it should. There is failure in an institution, in a democratic institution that stops working as it should, and so on. Philosophically, we have a problem. We have one word in English for failure, but what that word stands for is such a vast, such a vast territory. But tellingly, in English, we have one word. In other languages, it's that we have multiple words. So I tried what I tried to do in the book was not so much to go into specifics, into, let's say, fa- design failure. That's the job of engineers, to study failure in its details, you know, in, in view of making better products, right? I didn't go into failures of cognition, of emotion, you know, and so on. That's the job of psychologists. I took us one step back and look at failure from the point of, of view of our experience of it. So my entry point was the experience of failure. And that's where you have this commonality. That's where it all comes together in some way or another. Throughout my project, failure is understood as as whatever we experience as a disconnection, disruption, discomfort in the course of our pattern interaction with the world and others. When something, you know, ceases to be or work or happen as expected, that's kind of my operational definition. I chose to deal with those four types of failure. One is the failure of things, the plain engine that, that stops. It's an object. It's, it's stuff, right? I'm not involved in the failure of my you know, freezer or computer. But whenever that failure happens, it affects me. So I do have an experience. So if my computer stops working right now, it would be a a small disaster because it would interrupt our conversation. It would create some some trouble. It's not a big deal. But if the plane engine stops while we are in flight, in mid-flight, that's much more serious. That's the failure of things, right? That's the kind of, it's remote, because it's so impersonal, it's so away from, from what we, we fundamentally are. But it's relevant. It's relevant. The next circle, as I call it, is political failure. It's still remote, but we are you know, political animals and we are involved in politics where we participate in, in failure. We, sometimes we are agents of failure. Sometimes we are victims of failure, all that being political failure. Then the next layer would be uh, social failure. We are social creatures. Whether we, we may choose to stay away from politics, but it's very hard to stay away from society. And finally, we have the, the most intimate of all is biological failure, unavoidable. It's it's there. It's no matter how much we we deceive ourselves, it's it's, it's going to catch up with us. Yeah. Spoiler alert: we're we're all going to die. <laughs> Thank you.
coming up after the break. What can Gandhi's light teach us about failure? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Gandhi is such an interesting case study here, too. I mean, you write that he lived in the long shadow of failure. And in the most obvious sense, you're right. Gandhi died in the India he dedicated his life to building very much did not come to pass. Is the lesson there that our political projects, like all human things, are just imperfect and destined to fail? Why is that worth remembering? That's a good point, actually, because we do have... In Gandhi, he's celebrated as a saintly figure. Even the name Mahatma is a reference to holiness. And so if even somebody like himself failed politically and failed to bring people together and failed to create a community, what can we expect from, from us ordinary people? But also there's so, so much more in him. We have, of course, the primary source of my discussion of Gandhi's failures comes from his own biography. It's his own record. I didn't invent it. I didn't have to study to invent anything. It's all there. 
he he confesses he comes up with this long list of failures from an early age and he had a very interesting approach of course we from from some of those failures from our point of view look ridiculous that there are no failures at all but f- for himself uh, you know by his own standards they're huge failure at some point for example he experiments with meat eating so he was vegetarian of course he was a good hindu and then at some point, there is this temptation. Some friend invites him to eat meat. He had a, had a philosophical justification. Look, meat eating would help us defeat the British because it will make us stronger and we we will be better fighters and so on. The British have managed to occupy us and you know take charge of everything because they are meat eaters. That one thing, that one instance where where he had meat, kind of poisoned his own uh, life. And you do have similar instances later on when he would do something stupid or, or some mistake, and that would haunt him forever. I rather like this idea of failure as something that awakens us to the reality that things will go wrong, that we can't take anything for granted. And you talk about achieving humility, and maybe that's also the point here, right? Maybe it's Maybe it's good every now and again to have our our vanities and our expectations just flattened by the world, but that's just me talking. I mean, what what is this relationship for you between failure and humility? And why is humility such a crucial virtue? It is. Whether you are a believer or not, you are a religious person or not, humility remains a, a major Virtue, we can call it virtue, or it can be a, uh, we can call it attitude. Primarily, at the very basic level, humility is about not understanding. Moral teachers and, and religious figures would say it's a, it's a sin to be arrogant, to be proud, that you have to, you know, strive to be humble. In that respect, it's a religious virtue. That's, of course, that's true, but more importantly, in my reading, humanity is an epistemic value. It has an epistemic value. It's, it helps us better understand the world. It helps us better understand our situation in the world. Why? Because when we are humble, when we achieve, indeed, achieve humanity, we manage to reduce all those projections of power, of, of arrogance, of dominion, of dominance over others, over the world around. All those projections form some kind of screen between us and the world, between us and the things we we are trying to understand. And when that screen is removed, we finally have access to things as they are, as opposed to as we like them to be. So that's the whole thing. We are proud. We have our, our own ambitions, our own dreams, our own desires. We tend to see the world in, a, in, a, in a some kind of colored fashion, not as it is, but as we would like it to be. And that, of course, that's wrong. That's a misrepresentation. That's a failure. Well, humility is also a political virtue for you, right? I mean, you, you say that democracy fails when it doesn't make enough room for failure, when people can't help seeing themselves as better than they are. What do you mean there? Right. So one of the assumptions in the book is that we are born with this power instinct. We are animals and political animals striving to assert ourselves against others, against the world. That's what life is all about, right? It's this struggle. It's this self, continual self-assertion. As we become enlightened, as we should, right? 
we realize that that's not the way to go. We need this kind of humility. We need to understand that we are one among others. We have a limited faculties. We have a limited comprehension. And if we are to live in a polis, in a city with others, we have to kind of take a step back and recognize our own finitude. We are finite creatures in all kinds of ways. Politically speaking, we play a very small part. And in a democratic society, it's, it's crucial in my, in my reading for every single individual to have the sense of his or her own humility. It's I'm just playing a small part. I'm, I, I make mistakes all the time. That other guy may know things better than I do. You have to be always ready to admit that you are, you are wrong, which is, which is difficult. <laughs> It is. You know, one thing Albert Camus, and he's, we've done an episode on him before, one thing he convinced me of was that more harm has come into the world through people who were absolutely convinced that they were right, that they had the truth. In other words, from people utterly lacking in humility. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's something that we are facing right now. It's regardless of our personal, you know, political affiliations, we, we, tend to see the other party, the other side, as, as wrong. We are convinced that only our beliefs, our sympathies, our political preferences are the right ones. And whatever comes from the other side is toxic, is wrong, is a threat to democracy, which leads us to such a crisis of democracy. There may be truth on the other side. Obviously, we have our own preferences, and yet we have to stay open because nobody has a monopoly. You know, I think it's very hard to talk about failure without also talking about success, since neither concept is intelligible without the other. Do you think we worship success too much in this culture? I think so. I think so. There has to be a balance. If we look, you know, at the past and other cultures, I think different cultures have achieved a better balance. What I mean is that, of course, we do need success. We need to be successful because otherwise it's extremely frustrating. It's unhealthy to experience only failure. It goes against the human nature. It's going to drive us crazy. But if all our lives, practical lives, social lives, political lives, intellectual lives, are obsessed with success, we miss something important about what it means to be human because it's kind of, it takes, it blinds us, all that obsession blinds us and prevents us from seeing the bigger picture to seeing our condition in the world, what's really important. So we we do have in, in this country, for example, this obsession with rankings, with all kinds of indicators of, of status. If you start believing in that and if you start acting, you know, in response to that, it takes away your life. You become alienated from yourself. You, you stop paying attention to what's really important. And what you want to do is just to be on top, to go to the best university possible, to have the most expensive car, and so on. And that's damaging, spiritually damaging. Well, I mean, I think we also have a very superficial and narrow definition of success. You know, we all think we know what success and failure look like because we all know the markers of success in this culture. But if those markers are wrong or unwise, then our stories about success and failure are leading us astray. And I think that's part of what you're saying here, at least in the book. Right, because 
the definitions of failure and success, of social failure and social success, are products of a certain system. Each society generates its own understandings of social and failure and success. In ancient Greece, they would have a very different understanding, a very different definitions, very different criteria, and so on. In ancient China, they, obviously, they would be doing something different. So our own comes with its own, you know, projections and, and definitions and representations. And that's not separated from the fundamental presuppositions of our society, where the most important things are Profit, profit making, production, consumption, kind of the indefinite growth of economic growth. So if you if we take that into account, we realize that this this societal push to succeed, you know, to be optimistic about success, to to hope that tomorrow there's going to be a better day and so on, has something to do with the, the fundamental assumptions of our society, where, for example, it's it's very important for banks to have clients. And those clients, you know, they take loans and they have to pay them back. And behind, you have this culture of optimism and, and culture of success. You have this, this general push towards a better future, right? It's, it's always a better future, which is kind of a religion right now here. If we all believe in a better tomorrow, it makes us better consumers, better citizens, better participants to the political project. And of course, there is so much to lose in the process. We may eventually lose our soul. But what's the alternative, right? I mean, <laughs> no one wants to believe in a shittier tomorrow, right? I mean, we still got to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> we have, if you go back in the past, you have societies where, for example, the best things happen in the past. You have a golden age, and what they, the present is lived in the shadow of that, of that golden age. What we have here is some kind of echo of a strong Christian culture, Judeo-Christian culture, where the, the coming of a, of a Messiah, the second coming of Jesus Christ, was a lived experience, was the most important you know, religious experience that people had. Now, of course, we don't have, we live in a secularized society, but we still believe in this coming of a better future. So it's coming from that place but in the process, we stop being believers. We we no longer believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, you know, most of us. We, but we do believe in the coming of a better prophets, of better, you know, car brands and, and so on, better technology that will improve our lives, of better days in general. Yeah. Well, why do you think most of us want to succeed so badly? You know, I realize <laughs> I realize that question may sound dumb and rhetorical, but bear with me. Because I don't think it is, you know. What I'm getting at is, I don't think most of us try to succeed because we believe there's some inherent virtue in it. I think we're trying madly to succeed because it's a means to recognition and status and reward. It's how we get the people around us to tell us that we're good and smart and worthy. And that relates to failure because this is partly why we're so terrified of failing, right? We don't want to be judged as bad or low status or deficient. I understand those kinds of fears. I mean, I, I share them. I mean, who doesn't get that? But it is worth reflecting on just how much those feelings guide our lives and what the cost of that is. That's an excellent point. In our society, which worships success, we want to succeed because we don't want to stand out in a bad way. 
I have a, a chapter, as you know, in the book where Choran, Emile Choran, a Romanian-born French philosopher, a, a brilliant writer, a very successful writer in a way, chooses the life of a parasite in Paris. He moves from Romania to Paris and chooses to do nothing, you know, lives like a beggar. All he does is, is thinking through his own condition, the condition of the society in which he lives, and so on. And the the, the end result is a, is a body of work, an extremely interesting body of work, which comes with metaphysical depth, with stylistical beauty, and, and so on. So to go back to your question is, the pressure to succeed is in fact, at its core, a pressure to conform to societal norms. I don't want race to succeed as, as I want to, to be with others. To be accepted, just as you said, not to stand out in a bad, shameful way. It's not really success in itself. It's the fear of marginalization, the fear of becoming an outcast, of solitude. The whole conversation of failure and success, it, it should be connected to a larger conversation about society, about social standards, social pressures, and so on. Yeah, you know, something you take on in the book, and I love that you do this, um, is this effort to rebrand failure as a, quote, stepping stone to success. And this is something, you see this trope all over the place. You see it in the tech world, you find it in self-help literature, you hear it in sports a lot. Why is that mode of thinking just wrongheaded for you? Because it doesn't really deal with failure. Really, it's just another conversation about success. Because fundamentally, failure is unpleasant, is ugly, is terrible. Failure is, at its core, is something profoundly unpleasant to experience. And what those people, you know, talking about failure as a stepping stone to success are doing is sugarcoating, turning it into a conversation about success. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about failure. We don't like to talk about many unpleasant things. But by having certain ways of dealing with that, by sugarcoating and reusing a certain kind of language, we give the impression that we've dealt with the problem where we haven't, actually. We have the sheer fact that we fail. There is failure out there. And those people, you know, those self-help gurus and so on, they cannot ignore the fact. What they do instead, they hijack the conversation and they shift it and they move it into a place where it's made more pleasant. Ordinarily, we don't want to hear unpleasant things. We don't buy a movie ticket to watch a tragedy. We want to go in in a movie theater and have a good time and be entertained. That's why those people, you know, self-help writers and so on, they may be well-meaning and they may be helpful in, in some way. But at the end of the day, I don't think they, they help us too much because they manage to avoid what's really at stake, the dark nature of failure, the dark truth that the human condition is all about. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's part of this notion that the whole point of life is to just get closer and closer to perfection. And any mishaps, any failures along the way, well, those are just diversions. Whereas what you're saying, no, no, that's actually a really, really essential part of living as the flawed creatures that we are. And turning away from that is a mistake. Exactly. It's a matter of framing how you look at the world. There are different ways. So we have, for example, in in, in some very serious religious traditions, spiritual, intellectual, and religious traditions, like Buddhism, the very first truth of Buddhism is life is suffering. It's a very brutal, you know, opening. 
to live is to suffer, right? We have in, in Christianity, similarly, the episode in the Garden of Eden was relatively brief. We don't know much because in, in that place, you don't have stories. And then we have the, the fall. The human history starts with the fall. So my reading of failure is an attempt to connect with those traditions, which I consider deeper, Buddhism and Christianity and, and others, even if my own position is secular, it's not necessarily religious. It doesn't exclude religion, but it's not necessarily religious. My framing is of such a nature that the world is fundamentally a failed project. We come from nothing. We'll return to nothingness. We are meant to die, no matter how you know how much we work on this, how much you know we pay for better medicine and better technology and so on, we'll all end up there. Failure is an accident. Whatever is good in our lives, whatever is positive, is something that we extract from failure. We extract from nothingness. We extract from meaninglessness and so on. So it kind of it, it gives us in, in a sense, it gives us more agency. Because we, I, you know, I'm surround, I'm flooded with with misfortune and so on. We are surrounded, you know, with bad things, and yet we manage to make something that's livable. We create a space where we can live a, a decent life, but that takes more effort. If the world is bad, and I manage to make a good life within this world, it takes an effort. It takes responsibility. It takes lots of things. Whereas the other position, you know, the default mode, as you said, is optimistic. You don't have to do much. If optimism is easy, why should we engage with failure? Is there something positive to gain from it? We'll discuss after one more quick break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do you think of this as a gloomy, pessimistic book? <laughs> I don't think it is. Maybe on a superficial reading, I guess it could be seen that way. But do you self-consciously think of it as as dark and pessimistic? No, actually no. In part because of the stories I, I use. Those are sometimes even funny stories. Yeah, I don't think it's dark at all, but this is a good time to kind of come back to this idea of biological failure or this idea that 
our death is like the ultimate failure, right? And I definitely hear what you're saying, right? We we are quite literally born into a losing struggle. Life is the definitional failure in the sense that we start to die the second we're born. But life is not necessarily a failure just because it ends, right? Yes, you can look at it that way. Because I don't think it is. One of the, the assumptions of the book is failure is a fluid thing. It's kind of it's dynamic. Let's take that, that example you just used. Life is not necessarily a failure. When doctors have to indicate the cause of death for somebody, they would use this language. It may be a slip, a slip of tongue. They, they use organ failure. The assumption somehow, it's an unconscious assumption, unspoken, is that we may, in principle, we may work for our organs, our bodies may work indefinitely. Should we just find the right equipment, the better technology, the better treatment? Even in the medical profession, this dream of an indefinite life. But then they would come up with the idea of failure. It's interesting how it, it kind of it slips in. Again, it's a back and forth because it's so much is involved, emotions and understanding and enlightenment and so on. It's a very individual, very private matter. So much depends when we are having this conversation on the individual, on our possessions as, as individuals, on what we've experienced, on what we internalized, on the lives we've lived and so on. So it's kind of, it's, it's very difficult to have a detached purely theoretical discussions on failure, because it's one of those topics in which everything is evolved, our whole beings. When we talk about love, for example, we have a similar situation. We cannot really talk about love without bringing in all the personal baggage, all the loves we had, or the betrayers, all the things that come with love and so on. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I believe, and, and maybe you do too, that we should keep an eye on our mortality because living a meaningful, worthwhile life means accepting the truth of our condition while also, in some sense, rebelling against it. This is Camus in The Myth of Sisyphus, right? This idea that the world only appears absurd or meaningless because we demand that it have some sort of higher meaning. But just because it doesn't, doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just means... It is on us to make it meaningful, to live and create and affirm, right? These things, just because they don't last forever doesn't mean they're not worth doing. In fact, it, because they won't last forever is partly what makes it so meaningful and special in the first place. I like that point. It's not that, you know, by dying, we fail, right? Our life is a fail life because one day we'll die. When we don't die properly, when we don't learn how to die, when we don't understand our mortality properly, when we don't come to terms with our mortality well before the event happens to us. This kind of understanding that's so demanding, so important that we may need a different term. We call it enlightenment. That's what we get in those spiritual traditions. Those people, you know, the, the Zen masters and so on, the enlightened people of, of Sufism and so on, didn't leave fail lives because they died, I would say. Whenever that moment came for them, they were better equipped to grasp it, to make sense of it, to see it as some kind of culmination of their project rather than as a misfortune, right? Coming to terms with mortality, making sense of death, you know, well before it happens, that helped us not necessarily die better, that will happen, but also live better. 
Have you ever read Nietzsche's riff on sandcastles? Which is where? Uh... God, I don't remember where where this is or what book this is in, but he has this idea that you can gauge someone's relationship to time by looking at how they build a sandcastle. And he has these like three different examples, right? One guy will bitch about the fact that the waves are just going to come wash it away. Maybe he'll build the sandcastle, but he'll grumble along the way, right? <laughs> and another guy, well, he won't even build it at all because why the hell would you bother, right? The tide's just going to come in and destroy it anyway, so the hell with it. <laughs> and then there's this third person who throws himself into building a sandcastle joyously and with passion, knowing it's going to be washed away by the tide. But he builds anyway and builds with a smile on his face. And like that is supposed to be this kind of paragon of what it is to like live an affirmative life. You know that annihilation is, is, is the ultimate endpoint for all of us, but you still go on, you still throw yourself into the world despite it. Excellent. That's exactly the point of, of what you have in, in Japan, but also in Korea elsewhere, the Cherry Blossom Festival. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You celebrate, you know, the splendor, the beauty, the, the, the ultimate beauty of life. And at the very same time, you know that tomorrow is not going to be there. Just like Nietzsche's uh, sandcastle, it's there in all its splendor, and yet you know it's not going to last. It's gone tomorrow. It will fail. <laughs> it will fail, yeah. So you have that embedded failure in the process, and you ignore it, and yet you cannot ignore it. Yeah. You write in the book that we are creatures of chance, to use your phrase. We're born into this cosmic farce, right? But our failures give us these these insights into our existence. And you argue that we realize the magnitude of our accomplishments in spite of all these harsh realities. You know, you say we, we get the joke. <laughs> What's the joke? Is the joke that we're here at all, that we're conscious enough to know it's a losing game, but we get to play it with a smile on our faces anyway? Yeah, the joke is you have this, this sense of cosmic farce you come into this world fully aware. We grow up and we, one day we become fully aware of the world. And if we push further, we understand that we are creatures of chance. We understand that we are just nothing, nothing really. We are next to nothing. And that's a big joke, right? Why should we be here in the first place if we, if we, we are so insubstantial, if we are so fleeting, if we don't mean anything? Why should we be brought into this world? By understanding that situation, by getting the joke, you, you somehow, I'm not saying we come to master the situation. That's maybe too much. But we can afford to smile, you know, complicitly. At the end, you describe the moment we wake up every morning where we don't quite have our bearings yet. We're not quite thinking yet. And very quickly, our memories start to return. We start thinking about what we're going to eat for breakfast what we got to do that day, our, our various obligations. And the story of us begins to get retold and reinforced in our minds as we perform our life <laughs> as it is. Why is this the most significant moment of every day for you? I just, I just love this thought. It is because that's when we realize we have this, this overwhelming insight that to be is to be able to tell a story. Every morning we become ourselves only at the moment when we remember who we are in a kind of articulated manner. And more exactly, when we are able to tell the story of who we are. So we exist only to the extent that we can 
tell the story of our existence. And that we have that at the very end because that casts um, a light on the whole project. It's a final couple of pages of the book. It gives you the key, I would say, to the whole project because it highlights the importance of storytelling. In the end, it's all about storytelling. It's how we manage to tell our story. We can give us meaning to the extent that we can tell a good story about us. Yeah, it's you're right. It is just brief, brief flash of a moment. But it for that little fraction of a moment, we are kind of a blank slate. And I could not agree more that we are, and I think you say this explicitly in the book, that we are fundamentally storytelling creatures. We narrate our way into meaning every day, and we narrate our way into humility, and we narrate our way into and out of success and into and out of failure every day. All of which is to say, it really does matter which stories we tell ourselves. So we should choose them wisely. Right. That should make us more responsible. Placing failure at the core of who we are, and in fact, turns us or should turn us into more capable agents. It should give us more agency. It sounds paradoxical, but I think I'm right here. Because if I admit those failures, if I see, you know, where I fail, whatever is wrong, whatever is bad that happens to me and around me, I have more stuff to do. There is more space I can fill. Really, there is room for improvement. There is room for storytelling. I have, I have more stuff to do. If my life story is only a story of success, all the good things you know, and so on, really that leaves me out, most of me out. It's paradoxical. It's, I'm just the, you know, the happy, the fortunate beneficiary of this long chain of blessings and successes and so on. And there's not much for me to do, right? Except say yes and sure. <laughs> but in fact, when we make a conscious decision to recognize failure in the world and in our lives, that empowers us. Yeah, I mean, I guess bringing it back to Camus here at the end, right? This is the image of Sisyphus that he wants us to grasp onto, right? This Sisyphus is not a failure. Life is not pointless just because that boulder rolls back down the hill. No, hell no, right? No, you, you go back down, you make that boulder your own, and you push it back up again, right? And there's meaning in that pushing. And that's also a counterintuitive way to think about Sisyphus, but I think it aligns with what you're saying here. And I think it's good and true. Excellent. I mean, I have Camus in the book, as you know, but not that particular image. But as you are talking about this, I I realize how much truth there is in that. So probably in the back of my mind, there was this, this Camusian insight working there. I love it. Again, the book is In Praise of Failure, Four Lessons in Humility. Kostika Bradaton, thank you so much for being here. I love these kinds of conversations. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think about this one. Was it a success, a failure, somewhere in between? Send us an email and let us know at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on all the socials. We're off next week, but we'll be back with a new episode on Monday, March 27th.